0: If I were to ask you who said, I'm the greatest of all time, you would say, Muhammad Ali. That's right. You know, though many look at that statement along with others made by Ali and believe them to be somewhat prophetic because a lot of the things that he claimed surprisingly came true, he accomplished in his career, and though many believe Ali to be one of the greatest boxers, and one of the greatest athletes of all time. At the time, many believed Ali, because of statements like that, to be arrogant, and brazen, and presumptuous, and showy. And though I admit that Ali is one of the greatest of all time, you have to admit that his critics had a pretty good point. I mean, listen to some of these statements that Ali made about himself pertaining to boxing. He once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He also said, I'm the greatest, I'm bad, and I'm pretty. How about this one? I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. He also said to all of his opponents, he said, if you ever dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. I like that. I like that. How about this statement? Listen to this. He said, I am the astronaut of boxing. Joe Lewis and Dempsey were just jet pilots. I'm in a world of my own. And then, of course, after beating Sonny Liston and becoming the heavyweight champion of the world after repeating over and over again that he shook up the world and that he's the greatest in an interview after the fight Ali said I am the king of the world now think about that statement for a moment that is a gigantic statement isn't it I am the king of the world and he's speaking of himself in, in reference to boxing, and he's, what he's basically saying is, I'm in a world of my own. I'm on a mountain by myself, at the top, at the apex. No one comes close to me. I am the king of the world. But when you look at it, Ali's life, he also lived his life in this way, didn't he? He really did. His attitude was, nobody seals my fate. Nobody calls the shots for me. I am the king. I don't answer to anyone or anything. What I say goes, period, I am the king. And I believe that Ali lived his life in that way. But you know what else I believe? I believe that deep down we share this desire. Maybe not to the extent of Ali, but I believe deep down we too want to be the king at least over our world. I think deep down, we want to be the king of our life. We want to be our own authority. Well, where does that come from? Is this something fairly new that started with Muhammad Ali? Did he really get the ball rolling on this? Did he start this trend? No. This has been our desire from the beginning, hasn't it? It has. We can trace this all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, chapter 3. You remember the story, right? We've discussed it many times in here. God creates man and woman and places them in a garden paradise and he gives them authority over his world and he gives them free reign in his garden. But he gives them one rule. He says you have one rule and it's this. Don't eat from this tree. You see, early on, Though God gave man authority, he is teaching man that man is to be under authority, right? Though God has given us authority on his earth, he lets us know from the start that we were to live under his authority. Well, you remember what happened next, right? Though God gave this command, man chose to reject God's rule, he chose to go against God and go at life on his own. Man basically says, I want to be the king of my world. I don't want to answer to God and do what he tells me to do. I don't want him as my king. I want to call the shots. I want to be my own king. Man didn't like God's rules, so he rejected God's authority. And we all know what happens next, right? As a result of that rebellion, as a result of that sin, sin enters into the world, and as a result of sin, death enters in as well, and the world becomes chaotic, and this picture-perfect life with God is shattered. Though God created everything right and good, sin comes in and ruins and wrecks God's perfect world. And God could have left it that way, couldn't He have? He could have. He could have said, okay... That's it. I've had it with man. and could have wiped his hands of us and wiped his hands of the whole thing. But instead, we see as early as chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, God committing himself once again to this broken and fallen world. Though he could have left this world, and more importantly us, in this broken and fallen state, instead, he chose to step in and restore and redeem this broken and fallen world, and chose to restore and redeem a broken and fallen people by reaching out to us again and accomplishing salvation for us so that in turn we might be made right with Him. And shortly after the fall, we see this commitment. Shortly after the fall, God makes this promise to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He basically says, though you have rejected my rule and have sought to make yourself king, which has in turn enslaved you to sin, God says, nevertheless, though you have disobeyed me, nevertheless, I am going to provide a king once again from you for you and your offspring. He says, I am going to send a king who is going to come and redeem you and redeem and restore this broken and fallen world. When it, well, in our text for today, we're going to discover that Jesus is that King. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. This morning, we're picking back up in our sermon series through John entitled, Knowing Jesus from John and our story for today, like a lot of the stories we have discussed through John is a familiar one. Today we're going to look at the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And when thinking about this event, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this event, right? And a lot of details come to your mind. For example, many of you, when you think about this event, you picture Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? And people coming out to meet him with palm branches and, and saying, Hosanna, right? And we're going to talk about those details this morning. But, but another thing that I'm really going to focus on this morning, a key, a key part of this event, text here a key point here that we don't often think about when discussing this event but we should it's an inescapable teaching from this text the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem clearly shows us that Jesus is the king when thinking about this event in scripture what should come to your mind is the fact that Jesus is the king and not just any king the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you in this passage that Jesus is the king. And I want you to consider this, because he is the king, what the proper response to him should be. From this text, we're going to look at what Jesus's response is, to him being the king. We're going to look at the response of the eyewitnesses in Jesus' day, and then we're going to end by discussing what our response should be as well. First, let's look at Jesus' response. And look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So here's what's going on here. There is this large crowd in Jerusalem because it is Passover and many of you know this already but Passover was a big deal to the Jewish people it was an annual celebration remembering the work that God had done in delivering his people from Egyptian bondage so they celebrated it every year in that day during Passover Jerusalem would just be packed with Devout Jews. A Jewish historian reported that during one Passover in the first century, there were close to three million Jews in this one area of the world. So there were a lot of people in town. A lot of people there during this Passover, and and, and during this time, you get this sense that there's just a lot of buzz in the air about Jesus, right? And one of the main reasons why is because he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this took place in Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So as you can imagine, there's this excitement in the air. And when Jesus comes into town, people go crazy for him. They're coming out of their homes. They're coming out in the streets to meet him and they do two things in particular. They, they bring out palm branches and they lay them at Jesus' feet. Now this was customary to do in the first century when you had a hero coming into town. This was customary for people to do when they were welcoming a military general or a great national leader. We'll discuss in a few minutes why they give Jesus this type of welcome. But they go out with palm branches, and they lay them down, and they cry out to the Lord, verse 13, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now that word Hosanna is an interesting word, isn't it? It it was often used, it was a common word used in in greeting people, like, you know, God bless you, but it was was a, a common sign of greeting, but it literally meant, save us now. Save now is what it meant. And then they followed with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a reference to Psalm 118. And by quoting this Psalm, the crowd is acknowledging that Jesus is someone special. Someone who has come from God. And then they also say, Even the King of Israel, or another way of translating that is, namely the King of Israel. So when you put it all together, here's what the crowd was basically saying. They were saying, here comes the king, sent by God to save us right here and right now. Well, how does Jesus respond to these claims? They're making the statement, you are the king who comes from God to save us. And and how does Jesus respond to this? Notice, he accepted it. Jesus' response is, he accepted it. Now, that's interesting that he accepts this title because several chapters back in the book of John, in John chapter 6, we see Jesus avoiding this title. After miraculously feeding 5,000, John tells us in verse 15 of chapter 6 perceiving then that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So remember, we talked about this in chapter 6. They wanted to take Jesus and they wanted to make him king and Jesus walks away from that kind of recognition. But here in John 12, he accepts it. He welcomes it. He embraces it. What has changed from John chapter 6 to John chapter 12? Well, the answer is simple. Timing. Timing. In John 6, it was not yet his time. The hour had not yet come, but in John 12, the hour is at hand. It's time for Jesus to be recognized as king. And let me show you in the text where we see that Jesus welcomes and embraces this claim here. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the crowd is essentially saying to Jesus here, We believe that you have come in the name of the Lord, in the name of God, to save us. We believe that you are the king that comes from God. And in response, what does Jesus do? What does it say he does? In response, he goes and gets a donkey, and he sits on it and rides into terror. Now be honest. That's kind of an odd response, isn't it? It really is. I mean, if you were going to ride into town where people were recognizing you as the king, would you fetch a donkey? I think not. I mean, nobody looks impressive and regal on a donkey, do they? No, you'd be saying, go get me a, a, a horse that looks like Secretariat or the Black Stallion, you know? Yeah, sea Biscuit. But Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey. Why? Well, John tells us. Look at verse 14. John says, as it is written. Now, whenever you see that phrase, that means the writer is about to reference an Old Testament passage, and that's what John does here. In verse 15, John quotes Zechariah 9-9, and to save you from having to flip around and find it, here it is up on the screen. You can thank me later. Now, keep in mind here, this is the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before this event was recorded in John 12. Zechariah the prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, hundreds of years... Prior to John 12, the events of John 12, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that the king of Israel was going to come. And he was not going to come in a proud and arrogant way, but in humility, riding a donkey. He was going to come not to bring war, but peace, not to punish, but to save. So let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus, when he goes and finds this donkey to ride into town, do you think he has Zechariah 9-9 in mind? You bet he does. When he finds this donkey and he rides into town, he is claiming to be this king. He is looking back at Zechariah 9-9 and he's saying, I am this guy. I am he, I am your king, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's accepting the praise from the crown. And he's essentially saying, you guys are right. The claims you're making about me and how I'm here to save right here and right now and how I'm the king of Israel is correct. He's accepting those claims. So Jesus is fulfilling... Zechariah 9, nine is showing that he accepts and welcomes this claim that he is the king. So I hope you see this here. Jesus accepted this title as king. And, and this is not the only evidence we have either. Turn back to uh, Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. In Luke's account of this event, Luke records a dialogue that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees. Look at Luke 19 beginning in verse 39. Luke writes, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he, Jesus, said to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See what's happening here? This is Luke's account of the same event of Jesus riding into town and people are saying, here's the king who's come in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, Jesus, you need to quiet these folks down. You need to set them straight. You need to correct them and rebuke them because they're calling you the king. And look again at how Jesus responds. I love this. He says, I tell you, even if they were silent, even if they didn't cry out that I am the king who's coming to save, he says, I tell you, the very stones would cry out. What Jesus is saying here in this account is, Even if no one recognizes me as the king, that doesn't change the fact that I am. He says, even if they do not, I am still. And even if they will not, all of creation will. That's what he's saying. Jesus clearly makes the point here that he is the king, and not just the king of a small group of people, not just the king of Israel. He says the stones are going to cry out. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I'm the king of all kings. I'm the Lord of all creation. To such an extent that if they were silent, nature would cry out and say that I'm the king. Wow. That is a statement. That's a gigantic statement right there, isn't it? It is. So once again, it's clear that Jesus accepts his title as king. Now let's take a moment to look at the people's response. When Jesus accepts his title as king, when he makes these claims that he is the Lord of creation, and when he shows that he is the true king of Israel, who has come to bring salvation, how do those looking on, how do the eyewitnesses respond? Well, there are three different responses that we see here in John 12 in this text. Let's look at each one of these some rejected it that's the first response some rejected it there were some who already had their mind made up about jesus right and this before this event and him riding into town into jerusalem in this way and accepting these claims just added fuel to the fire did we saw that in luke's account when the pharisees told jesus to rebuke those who are saying these things about him. But we also see that in John 12 as well. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We see here in verse 19 that they are clearly not happy with what has taken place in Jerusalem. In the first half of the book of John, we learn that the Pharisees tried multiple times to have Jesus arrested, and time and time again, they were unsuccessful in their attempts. So here in verse 19, we see that they are clearly put out. They say here, we are gaining nothing. In other words, we have failed time and time again to put this man away. We have failed to stop him, and now look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they're exaggerating a bit, right? They didn't literally mean everybody because they weren't following. But it's clear here, their comments here show that they're seriously frustrated. You ever been there? You ever had a plan in place? You try all you can to execute that plan and you fail time and time again. You finally just end up throwing your hands up in the air in desperation. Just, I'm wasting my time here. Nothing's working. That's the way they were feeling. That's the frustration that was being felt by the Pharisees in John 12. So some rejected these claims about Christ and were opposed to him. And this was true in the first century, and this is true today, isn't it? There are many in our world today, like those in the first century, who reject Christ as king and view him and his followers as more of a nuisance than anything else. Some believe Christianity is what is wrong with the world rather than what the world needs most. It's how backwards our world is. So some reject him as king. Here's another. Some were confused by it. We see this on the part of the disciples. Look at verse 16. This is after Jesus mounts a donkey and is riding in. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, at first, his disciples didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing and what he was saying, why he was saying what he was saying. And it's real easy for us to be critical of them, isn't it? Because... We read this story with New Testament eyes, with all of God's revelation. They didn't have it at that time. So, so when you put yourself in their shoes, you can really understand their confusion. I mean, think about it. You have these people who have, who have been taught their whole lives who the Messiah is going to be and how he's going to, to, to come down and, and, and take charge. And you have this time. People think they're, they're upon it, upon this time. And, and people are ready to worship Jesus and make him king. And what does Jesus do? He gets on a donkey. you got to think that they were thinking to themselves, Donkey Jesus, really? I mean, they were expecting him, like the rest of the crowd, to, to ride into Jerusalem as an impressive, victorious warrior king. And instead, he rides in humbly and, and lowly as a servant. They didn't get it. This is not the first time they didn't get it, right? It's nothing new for the disciples. They were confused a lot during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, understanding would come later on to, to most of them, but at first, they didn't get it. And John admits it. You see, John gets it when he writes his book, right? But at first, he didn't. How true is this for each of us? Oftentimes, we don't know what God is up to in our life until we look back at how the events have unfolded to get us to where we are that we see it. Isn't that right? If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know that at times clarity comes after and not during or before. That was the case here with the disciples. They didn't get it either until after it was over, so they were confused. And then the third response is some misunderstood it. Some misunderstood it. Though many expressed a willingness to follow Jesus when he came riding into Jerusalem, many of these followers followed Jesus for the wrong reasons because they misunderstood who he truly was and what he was coming to do. Look at verses 17 through 18. It says, Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness for this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign so there's this large crowd following Jesus and the reason why is because he's just raised someone from the dead and that shouldn't surprise us right I mean, my guess is if you were to raise somebody from the dead this afternoon and people saw it you might get them following you around as well shouldn't surprise us same is true here But we find as the story goes on that they're not following Jesus for the right reasons. They're just superficially following him like the crowd in John 6 after Jesus feeds 5,000. You know how I know this? Because later on in this book we're told that many of the same crowd that was shouting loud, Hosanna, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem is the same crowd yelling crucify him as he stands before Pilate. The same crowd that rushed into the streets to meet Jesus with palm branches, many of them are back in the streets a short time later to cheer on those who are beating our Lord and sending Him away to be crucified. Same crowd. Remember they had a choice either to release Jesus or a hardened criminal and they chose Barabbas. Why? What happened? Why the change from praise to rebuke? from acceptance to rejection here's the reason why because they misunderstood Jesus and as a result they wanted nothing more to do with him see at first they thought they wanted Jesus as their king they claimed that they wanted him to come that they wanted to be delivered that they wanted to be free but the kind of freedom and deliverance that Jesus offered was not what they were looking for you see at this time the Jewish people were being oppressed physically and politically in every way. So they were looking for a powerful, victorious Messiah. They were looking for someone to come in who is going to be large and in charge, someone who's going to set up an earthly kingdom and start a visible, physical rule here on earth. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to make life good for them, who was going to make life easier for them. That's what they wanted. And believers, not much has changed today. We, we see this mentality all the time today. Many of us are happy to welcome Jesus into our world as long as he doesn't mess up our plans. As long as he furthers our agenda, right? As long as he makes our life better now in an immediate and physical way. And when he doesn't, we, like those in Jesus' day, we turn away from him. When he stops being about what we want, we turn away. So that's the perspective of those in Jesus' day. Rejection, confusion, and misunderstanding. So we've we've looked at Jesus' response. We've looked at the response of the eyewitnesses. Now let's end by discussing what our response should be scripturally. Our response should be this. When it comes to the teachings that Jesus is king, we are to embrace it. We are to embrace it. This is the proper response, biblically, to embrace it. Now, let me take a moment to to tell you what this looks like. And then I want to give you several benefits that come from following Christ as king. In verse 20, there were a group of Greeks who wanted to see Jesus... And though the text doesn't tell us why, I believe they wanted to get close to him to really see what Jesus was all about. And in the following verses, Jesus makes this known. In verse 24, he says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Here, Jesus gives an illustration. He says here, For a grain of wheat to be fruitful, It must fall to the ground and die. Otherwise, it's worthless. It has to die to be fruitful. Isn't that interesting? And though I believe he's somewhat talking about himself here, as you read on in the passage, it is clear that he has his followers in mind. Jesus is saying here, you want to embrace me as king? If you want to truly live for me and live an abundant and fruitful life, you have to die. You have to die. We just, we're, we're gonna sing about this here in a moment. Jeff talked about this a little bit earlier. We're gonna sing about this in a moment when we sing the wondrous cross. What does the wondrous cross do? It bids me come and die to find that I might truly live. Believers, this is to be our response. If we wanna live an abundant and joyful life that honors God, then we, then we must follow Christ as king, and to truly follow him as king, get this, you have to die. In verse 25, Jesus goes a bit further to say, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying, you cannot love your life if you want to follow me. You have to hate it. Now, some of you in here, as, as well as many in that day, thought this was just too extreme. They questioned this, like, hate my life? What do you mean, you know? What do you mean I have to hate my life? Well, here's what he's saying here. Each and every one of us naturally love our life. We do. We're the center of our world. We're the apple of our eye. We are. We're the king of our life. That's what Jesus means, by loving your life. He means you are your own king. You are on your own throne. You are the king of your own kingdom. You are your own authority. That's what Jesus means by loving your life. Now when Jesus talks about hating your life, he doesn't mean you literally have to hate yourselves. What he's saying is for you to truly live, you have to get off that throne. There has to be something else you love more than your own life, namely Christ, namely the Lord Jesus That's what he's saying. So when Jesus is saying here, you have to hate your life, that's what he's talking about. He says, to follow me, you have to die to yourself. You have to hate your own life. And again, that word hate simply means to love less. Christ is saying, your love for me, your desire to want to follow me must be so strong that all other demonstrations of love in your life, especially self-love, should look like hate in comparison to the way you love me what he's saying now let's be honest that's pretty radical isn't it but that's gospel that's the gospel you might be even thinking along the same lines as the crowd you might be thinking well if that's what it takes I'll pass why do it if following Christ involves me dying to my own desires if it involves me hating my own life then why do it doesn't sound very enjoyable well, I'll tell you why. Several reasons, quickly, and then we'll, then we'll close. Several benefits to following Christ as king that we find here in John 12. First is because by doing this, you will bear fruit. We've talked about this a bit already, but in verse 24, Jesus is clear that to be fruitful, we must be willing to die to ourselves. And he's the perfect example of this, isn't he? Think of all the fruit that resulted from Christ laying down his life. It's amazing. We're here because of that, right? Gathered here together. We also see this in the the ministry of his apostles, right? They forsook all and followed Christ. And what resulted was the spread of the gospel across the known world. So fruit comes as a result of following Christ as king. But there's more. Another benefit to following Christ as king is that you get life. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. Jesus says, if you love your life more than anything else and only live for yourself, guess what? You will lose your life. And we see that all the time in people. People who live for nothing but themselves and their miserable inside. It doesn't lead to joy. It doesn't lead to life. But, but he says, if you say, I'm going to die to my desires, I'm going to die to myself, and I'm going to give myself up, I'm going to step off my throne, and I'm going to make Jesus king and him my authority, and I'm going to put him first, you know what ends up happening? You get life. And not just any old life. I'm talking about an eternal, abundant, and full life in Christ. Listen, this is key. I want you to get this. What we lay down for Christ... Here on earth, he will put all of that and more into our hands in the life to come. You get that? It's what Jeff was talking to us about earlier. Listen to this quote David Fairchild. I love this. You cannot outsacrifice God's resurrection generosity. I love that. It doesn't matter how much you sacrifice, how much you lay down here on earth, God is going to be a million times more generous in the life to come. Therefore, we need to be willing to lay it down, folks. Lay it down. So you bear fruit, you get life, and lastly, you gain honor. There is honor to following Jesus as king. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, we often hold back, even though we wouldn't say this out loud, we do. We often hold back when it comes to following Christ as king because we want earthly honor and praise. And we know we might have to sacrifice a bit of that if we give too much of ourselves to Christ. It's true. Therefore, we hold back because we want earthly honor. But get this, I want you to understand this. Believe me when I say this, that all human honor pales in comparison to the eternal honor that God will give to those who love and serve his son. Let me say that again. All human honor pales in comparison to the eternal honor that God will give to those who love and serve his son. So those are the benefits. You bear fruit, you get life, and you gain honor. Maybe you're here this morning, and up to this point in your life, you can honestly say that Jesus is not the Lord of your life. You're convinced of that now, or maybe you have been for some time, and you can honestly say that that you don't know Jesus as the king, and you're not following him as king. But maybe now, this morning, more than ever before, the Spirit of God is working in your heart and life and convincing you that He is Lord and should be the Lord of your life. I pray, if this is you this morning, that you would not delay. But this very morning, you would humble yourself and turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation. Listen. These benefits that I just shared with you, they can be enjoyed by you this very day if you would turn from your sin and make Christ Lord and follow him as your king. Let's pray.